One of the most successful movies in 1968 uh, was a comedy called The Odd Couple. Uh, the setup for the movie was pretty straightforward. Uh, you can just imagine. Uh, it's actually based on a play, too. But the setup was basically just that they said, let's take uh, two guys with just opposite personalities and come up with an excuse for them to live together in the same apartment, and then we'll just see what happens. Right, so that was the setup. Uh, there was a guy. There was two guys. Both worked for a newspaper. One was named Oscar, longtime bachelor, single guy. He was messy. He was laid back. He was disorganized, and he was perfectly happy with all of that. Uh, he had a friend named Felix, also worked at the newspaper. Felix was recently divorced and looking for a place to stay, and so Oscar was good enough to say, "Hey, you can come stay with me. What could go wrong?" Uh, well, they found out in pretty short order because uh, it turned out Felix uh, was type A, a little bit of a clean freak, and more than a little bit uh, neurotic. And before too long, uh, Felix was driving Oscar crazy by following him around his own apartment, badgering him relentlessly for the messes he was leaving and making everywhere. Uh, and on the same token, in the other direction, uh, Oscar was just driving Felix nuts by his total lack of interest in reforming any of these behaviors that drove him crazy. Now, I don't want to spoil the movie for you, but I will say that in the end, they do manage to salvage the friendship and even grow it a little bit, but only after Felix finds a different place to live. I mentioned that this morning because our topic this morning is difficult, and it's sometimes hard for us even to acknowledge but it is just a reality of human nature and personality. The simple fact is, we do not all naturally get along well with one another. Uh, part of the reason, I think, that The Odd Couple was so commercially successful in all of its forms, play, movie, TV show, is that every single person who sat in the audience and watched it could relate to it, right? Uh, and I think we've all been there too, right? My guess is that if you think about it, you probably have already thought about it. Um, you can picture a time in your life when you've stood in a room and you've looked at somebody else that you know to be just a good and decent person and you have wondered to yourself, why is it that this perfectly good, decent person drives me nuts? Or maybe, why is it that I drive them nuts, right? It's just part of life. It's part of what it is to be human. Now, left on our own, mostly what we do is we just sort of learn to avoid those people. Uh, and we gravitate instead towards other people that we naturally get along with. But of course, that's not always possible. Sometimes, the people we struggle to like turn out to be coworkers, or family members, or even people we worship with at church. I'm sure not at this church, but maybe in some other churches, right? And speaking of church, that adds a whole nother layer too, doesn't it? Because we, if we are followers of Jesus, know that we are called to love our neighbors and even our enemies. And that seems to suggest that people we don't get along with probably falls in, in one of those two categories there somewhere, right? We know that our love for one another as, as followers of Jesus is supposed to be our hallmark, so that leaves us with a dilemma, and to put it a bit bluntly, the question is, how do, we, how do we love those people that we struggle to like, people that we just don't get along with? 
And particularly this morning, what I'd like to do by way of trying to address that question uh, is to ask two clarifying questions. What, what does the gospel require of us when we find ourselves in that situation? What does the gospel require of us? But then also, what doesn't the gospel require of us? So to help us answer those and navigate our topic, I'd like us to look at an example of a similar situation from Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open with me to Acts chapter 15. All right, Acts 15, starting in verse 36. Luke writes this. So sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and let's see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." All right, I want to begin just by sort of recapping what happened here and, uh, and seeing how it might help us out. Uh, this, this situation crops up because Paul suggests to Barnabas that they make a trip together, revisiting some of these new churches and Christian communities that they helped plant, uh, just to see how they're doing, maybe encourage them, strengthen them. Uh, but there's a hitch. Barnabas wants to go, but he wants to bring Mark and Paul does not. Now, now, what's Paul's problem? Why does he object? Well, Luke tells us, on a previous trip, Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia. Uh, he had not continued on with them in their work. And based on Paul's response, I think we can safely assume that whatever else Paul felt, uh, that had resulted in Paul losing trust in Mark. Now, I want to make a few quick notes here. First, Paul is not assuming that Mark is untrustworthy, and I think that's important. It's not an assumption. Uh, he's not making that judgment based on gossip or the reports of other people. He has been burned by Mark personally and in the recent past. Second, we have no indication from the text, I'm reading a little bit into the silence here, but we have no indication that Paul was angry with Mark. He simply believes that bringing him is unwise. Uh, that's what Luke says very specifically in verse 38. For Paul, this is an issue of wisdom, an issue of judgment. It's not an issue of anger or of a refusal to forgive. Finally, Paul is not asking Mark to be put outside the church, and he's not denying him any role in the ministry of the church, uh, he has no objection, for example, based on how the story ends, he has no objection to Mark traveling with Barnabas in service of the gospel. He just doesn't want Mark on his trip. Now, one final note that I think will help us see why this passage might be helpful for us this morning. And I think it's kind of interesting. Neither Paul, nor Barnabas, nor even Luke, writing later, accuses anyone in this situation here, in this disagreement, of sinning. No one's accused of being in the wrong, of acting in bad faith, or behaving in a way that's contrary to the gospel. And it's worth noting that when situations like that arise, they're not afraid to say so. 
Paul, on a separate occasion, when he notices that Peter has stopped eating with Gentile believers, has no hesitation calling him out. He calls him out in front of everyone and says, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's undermining the testimony of the gospel and you have to stop it. What's interesting is that none of that appears to be going on here. Now, Paul and Barnabas disagree sharply uh, to the point that they decide against traveling together despite their previous successful trip, but it's a disagreement over preference, over judgment, uh, not over core confessions of faith or sin. And it might be helpful for us as we think about situations in our own life to acknowledge that sometimes this happens. Sometimes no one has sinned, but we still disagree and we still don't get along. That, I think, brings us back to the two questions I want to explore this morning. Assuming that no one's in the wrong, that this uh, is a disagreement over preference, and maybe, to be honest, in the, in the uh, relationship between Paul and Mark, maybe there's even a personality conflict here. What exactly does the gospel require of the people involved in this situation? And what doesn't it require? And how might that help us as we try to navigate similar situations in our own lives? And, and let me just say, my hope in doing this, in seeking clearly and trying to draw this distinction is twofold. First, on the one hand, I do want to, I hope, that maybe we can lift some unnecessary burdens of shame and guilt that some of you might feel over the fact that you just don't get along with some other people in your life. Uh, but it's not just that. I do hope we can do that. But I hope we can do that so that we can better focus on obedience in the areas where God has called us to live differently. So that's, that's my goal. So let's start by clarifying what the gospel doesn't require in this particular situation. What it doesn't require. First, the gospel does not require Paul to put himself at risk against his better judgment. Look, travel during this period in history was dangerous and it was always risky. Uh, bandits and thieves were a constant problem. This is why, by the way, Jesus can tell parables about people being assaulted while traveling between two cities. He knows everyone listening can relate to that. Travel was dangerous, and not just road travel. Uh, traveling by ship was, was always risky as well. Paul alone has been involved in more than one shipwreck. And all this meant that when you traveled, you needed to be able to trust your companions, us with your wealth and sometimes with your own physical safety and your life. Paul has already been put at risk once by Mark's abandonment of him. Whatever the gospel asks of Paul, it does not require him to put himself back at risk against his own judgment. Paul doesn't trust Mark and deems traveling with him to be unwise, and so he does not travel with him. And I think He's not wrong to refuse. Let me pause here and say, as we think about our own context, that too often people in the church, and especially people in authority, have failed to make this distinction. They have used the gospel, an emphasis maybe on love and forgiveness, to pressure people back into situations that they have judged to be unsafe or unwise. And so let me say clearly, that is not what God asks of us, and we shouldn't ask it of other people. 
We should work to forgive, to lay down grudges, and to put aside anger. And Paul, from what we can tell in our passage this morning, has done all that with respect to Mark. But Paul rightly understands that none of that means that he is required to entrust his safety and his mission to someone who has proven untrustworthy in the past. God does ask us to forgive, but not to be foolish, nor does he require us to put ourselves at risk against our judgment. The gospel does not require that. And second, the gospel does not require uniformity. Now, it does require unity. We'll get to that in a moment. But this is different. And again, I want to point out, because I think it's important, in our, in our passage today, no one has sinned. No one has abandoned the faith. No one has undermined the gospel. Here in Acts 15, they disagree because they are different. And they have different preferences. And maybe even, I think we could say, different callings from God. And that's okay. Uh, God and the gospel needs people like Paul and it needs people like Barnabas. God needs both those with high expectations and a single-minded focus on bringing the gospel to people who have not yet heard it. And it needs those with a compassionate heart uh, who are encouragers, people with a heart to restoring others. And that means nobody should try and force Paul to be like Barnabas or try and force Barnabas to be more like Paul. God needs and uses both, as indeed he will throughout the rest of Acts. I think as we consider our situation in our context, it's worth reminding ourselves of the same truth. There are going to be people we struggle to like and struggle to get along with, people who struggle to get along with us. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes that has nothing to do with sin. We're just different, like Felix and Oscar. And God is not asking us to smother our personality in order to be more like someone else. Uh, it's, neither is it asking them to become more like you. The gospel neither demands nor creates uniformity. What the gospel should create, though, is an appreciation for the way God is willing and able to use people very different from us for very different purposes. We get a, a hint, a very tantalizing hint, in 2 Timothy 4.11 uh, about how this situation resolves. Paul, writing to Timothy, includes just this brief note. He says to Timothy, oh, by the way, when you come, bring Mark with you. He has been very helpful to me in my ministry. That suggests, again, it doesn't tell us for sure, but it's a tantalizing suggestion that a few things have happened over time. It seems that over time, God used Paul, we know this for sure, God used Paul to bring the gospel to much of the Mediterranean world. But it also seems that God was able to use Mark to help Paul significantly in his ministry as it continued on. And that also suggests, number three, that God used Barnabas to restore Mark and to help Mark earn back the trust of Paul. God didn't need the three of them to be more alike. He needed them to bring their own unique gifts and talents to the work of the kingdom. 
You see, the gospel neither demands nor produces uniformity. Neither does it require us to put ourselves at risk against our judgment. It does require other things, and we're going to get to that now. So with those two clarifications, let's turn ourselves now to what God does ask of us in these situations. First, in situations like this, the gospel does clearly require forgiveness. Uh, In Matthew 18, 21 to 22, Peter famously asks Jesus, Lord, how often, how often do I have to forgive my brother? And then having asked the question, uh, he then suggests his own answer, which he clearly thinks to be generous. Do I need to forgive him seven times? And Jesus, probably knowing exactly what Peter's thinking, that he has been generous, uh, I imagine Jesus kind of smirking at Peter and saying, no, Peter, how about 77 times? And then, having raised the bar to what must have seemed like an incredible height, Jesus tells a parable that raises it still further. He tells a parable that suggests uh, that any and everyone who has accepted the limitless grace and forgiveness of God is obligated to forgive those around them from the heart. Without question, the gospel requires Paul to forgive Mark from the heart for deserting them. It just does. The gospel requires that. Uh, If Paul has accepted Jesus' forgiveness for his sins, and they were many, it's worth remembering, if Paul has accepted the limitless forgiveness of God, he is obligated to extend that same forgiveness to Mark. And it seems, really, as though he has. Now, I realize, as I've said already, this isn't always an issue. Sometimes there is no offense to forgive, But here's why I wanted to bring this up anyway this morning. I know from my own life and experience that I struggle more to forgive the people that I already don't get along with as well. Yes, I'm assuming that's the same for you. I I just, I struggle more. I find it much easier to hold on to a grudge. It's much easier for me to justify holding on to that anger and that offense when the person on the other side is already someone I just... I'm not very compatible with. People I like, people I get along with easily and well, I find it much easier to forgive them. But I think that's why this is important because it's precisely in the place where we are least inclined naturally to forgive people that we most need the transforming power of the gospel. It's in those situations where we already struggle to get along with that other person that we need most to remember the great debt that God has forgiven us. The gospel compels us to forgive, perhaps especially when we struggle to like the person that we need to forgive. And I think it's worth saying, on the positive end, that when we do that, when we offer forgiveness, even to those we struggle to like, we reflect well the goodness of our God who offers it freely to everyone. All right, so the gospel requires us to forgive. Second, the gospel requires us to love those we struggle to like. Uh, Here it might be helpful to pause for a moment and just let me try and define a little bit what I mean. This makes me very nervous when I try and do it anyway. When when I talk about struggling to like people or people we don't get along with, I'm just talking about the, the interplay of personalities, 
all right? Uh, so, and I think you're all familiar with this. I'm just referring to the way that you feel about people. Often, it's something you can figure out right away after you meet them. There are some personalities you're just going to click with. You'll meet that person, and five minutes later, you're talking like you've known each other your whole lives. And there's other people that just for whatever reason, your personalities don't align very well. Again, you know, it's a funny reference, but Felix and Oscar are the odd couple. It's a good example. Sometimes they're just people. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with you. You just, you're just not going to get along well, easily, naturally. Uh, love, by contrast, is primarily concerned with how we treat others. It's, it's, it's defined by what it does. Now, it's still bound up with all sorts of feelings and emotions. That's what makes this complicated, But what makes love love is what it does. Uh, And where we cannot always help how we feel about people or or how compatible we are with them, we can and should be mindful of how we treat them. And on that matter, we have very clear instruction. Just listen as I read to you from 1 Corinthians 13 where the Apostle Paul writes describing and kind of defining love. He says this, starting chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's just a fact. If you haven't experienced it already, you will. You are not always going to find it easy or natural to get along with all the people that God brings into your life. And that doesn't mean that they have sinned or that you have sinned. Uh, But however difficult you may find someone, you are still required to love them. And love as Paul describes it. It means that you need to be patient with them. It means you need to be kind. It means you are not allowed to dishonor them or be rude to them, however much you might be tempted. And I'll just note that just like forgiveness, this all comes much more easily, much more naturally uh, when we're dealing with people that we naturally get along with. But what makes us children of our Heavenly Father is that we extend this same sort of patient and humble love even to those who do not get along well with us. And yes, even to our enemies. That's what God requires. So the gospel requires forgiveness. It requires love. And third, it requires unity and partnership in the work of the gospel. Now here, I want to highlight quickly two things I've already mentioned. First, the end result of the story we read in Acts. Uh, The end result of this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas is that where the church had intended to send out one missionary team, they now are sending out two. Barnabas travels with Mark and Paul travels with Silas. So this disagreement not only doesn't undermine, doesn't hinder the work of the gospel, in a way it ends up multiplying the work of the gospel. Second, uh, while the gospel requires forgiveness and love, um, it also requires partnership in the kingdom, which is what we have in the end. 
Now, they may not travel together, but it's worth noting that Mark and Paul are still traveling for the same purpose, to preach the same gospel and to serve the same Lord. That, I think, is a healthy picture of the unity that we should have in Christ. Not a unity that erases differences or flattens personality, but a unity that's rooted in our common Lord and our common purpose. Unity, not uniformity. I think the example of Paul and Barnabas here can be instructive for us. Look, sometimes we may find ourselves, uh, perhaps even in this church, serving alongside someone else that we just, we just can't get along with. The personality is just, we butt heads. It's just how it is, right? And perhaps in, if we find ourselves in that situation, We need to pause and remember that we need to love them. Remember, patience, kindness, no rudeness or dishonor. Uh, But we can maybe take a page out of Paul and Barnabas' book here and realize that in the vastness of God's kingdom, maybe we would be wise just for a season to serve God in different parts of the ministry, at least for a season. We can still have the same Lord, We can still serve the same purpose. We can still have unity and partnership in the gospel without literally being shoulder to shoulder. I put this point last because I think it helps explain why we're taking the time to cover this question at all this morning. Uh, There's two reasons, really. I mentioned the first at the beginning, which is because we can't always avoid it, right? You're going to find yourself maybe with a family member, maybe an in-law, a neighbor, a coworker you butt heads with, but you're stuck with them, right? And so we can't hide from it. We got to face it. That's one reason. A second reason, though, is that as followers of Jesus, we are all called to be servants of his kingdom. And in that project, we don't always get to choose our coworkers. God chooses them. And that means that maybe we need to learn to be a little bit more like Mark and Paul and Barnabas, Uh, meaning we need to find a way to forgive and love and partner with one another for the sake of the gospel, even when it doesn't come easily. Sometimes, maybe even a lot of the time, that's exactly how the gospel goes forward. I grew up uh, going to a small Christian camp in Amish country, Ohio, called Camp Burton. I I loved my time there. I had a great time as a camper. I just, I don't know, I took to it. Uh, I made friends uh, from other churches, uh, pen pals, I loved it. I had a great time, and I always thought that if I had the chance when I was older, when I was in college, I wanted to be a counselor, at least for a year, and to kind of give back to the ministry that had given so much to me. It's what Paul mentioned earlier. I mean, some of those counselors, I mean, I can still tell you their names. I can tell you an embarrassing amount of detail about them, but I looked up to them, and they had a powerful impact on me, not so much for what they said, but because of who they were and that they took time to invest in my life. And, and I wanted to give back a little of that. So freshman year at Bethel's winding down, I realized this is my chance, this is my opportunity. So I applied, I got to become, I was accepted. And so I showed up at camp, I was excited, and, and really it, it exceeded all my expectations. I had a great summer. Um, I, I loved and enjoyed so much of the staff that I was there working with. I had a great time with my campers. Uh, and as the, as the year was winding down, uh, we, the campers were gone. We were sort of cleaning up the camp, getting ready for the off-season. And one night, the, the staff were just hanging out. And um, I found myself next to Mark, 
who was another counselor there. He had been there, a counselor, for several years. Uh, and, and I have to say, just quickly, you know, I had realized early on that, that Mark and I, like something was weird there. Like we, we got along okay, but, but not well. I couldn't figure out really what the issue is. Um, so, you know, it's busy. You, you don't worry about it. You just go about the work and try not to think about it. Well, anyway, at the end, I'm sitting down with Mark and, and he starts talking to me. And, uh, and he proceeded to explain why things kind of felt odd. Now, I have to prepare you, because uh, what Mark told me, some of you, you're going to find this very difficult to believe. Uh, the rest of you, you're going to feel seen, okay? Uh, Mark looked at me, we had been talking, he said, you know, I just want to tell you, when you first got here to camp, we're doing staff training, I really didn't like you that much. And I said, oh, okay. He said, yeah, I don't know what it was. Like, you were just, you were this sports guy, and you were kind of, like, high energy, loud, and I just thought, ah, oh, you know, I don't know. It just, you just weren't my kind of person. Uh, he said, but I did want to say that that being true, I've really enjoyed working with you this summer because I noticed something as the summer went on. What I noticed is, you really connected with a bunch of kids I struggled to connect with. Like kids in your cabin, but also kids in my own cabin. And what I realized was that because you were here and I was here, like we were able to connect with a whole bunch more kids than I would have been able to do on my own. And I think that's pretty cool. Now, I won't pretend to you this morning that I was thrilled to hear him say that, so... I'm not offering that as advice. If you feel that way about someone, you may not want to just verbally tell them like that. Um, but honestly, even in the moment, I was mostly just impressed. One, it didn't come as a surprise to me. I, I had, could tell. I mean, we just gravitated towards other staff rather than each other, so I, I kind of knew that was true. Um, I, I, of course, I never considered the problem might be that he didn't like me, <laughs> you know? Um, but... Even in the moment, I was impressed because knowing that we hadn't clicked, uh, knowing that I just kind of got on his nerves a little bit, I was impressed with how well he had treated me anyway, really the whole summer. And that's part of what made it hard to figure out. I mean, I can just tell you, he was never rude to me. Uh, he was never impatient with me, despite the fact I was the new guy and I had a lot to learn, oftentimes from him. Uh, and this is kind of amazing too. As far as I can tell, he never spoke badly about me to anybody else. And this is a small camp, small staff, and I'll just let you know that if someone complains about you, you eventually found out about it. I never received word of that from anyone. He was patient. He was kind. He was not rude. He did not dishonor me. From the be and from the beginning of our time at camp, he worked with me as a helpful, faithful partner in the ministry of the camp. Now, I don't want to oversell it. It's worth noting that even after this little heart-to-heart -heart that we had, we didn't become great friends. Even after that, we both mostly gravitated towards other staff. But because we had been willing to forgive each other, because he had been willing to love and minister alongside someone he struggled to like, we did come to understand and respect each other better. And in the end, I think he would tell you, we even came to like each other a little bit more too. But here's the bigger point and the one I want to leave you with this morning. 
our camp was able to minister more effectively to more kids because we were both there at the same time. Because we were different, we were able to reach and connect with more kids. And we were both able to point those kids towards Jesus. And we didn't need to be best friends to do it. God doesn't promise that we're going to be best friends with everyone in his kingdom. But if we're willing to obey, to love, and to forgive, and to serve our Lord and his kingdom with those around us, what we can find is deep satisfaction. We can learn to better appreciate the gifts and talents of those around us, even those we may struggle to like. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I do thank you for all the people that you have drawn to yourself and to your kingdom. And Lord, even though sometimes it's difficult and sometimes we struggle to deal with it, Lord, I thank you for the variety of human beings. I thank you for how differently you've made us and gifted us. Because Lord, if we can be obedient to you, if we can learn to love and see one another as you see us, then we can find a deep appreciation for what each person brings to your kingdom and to your kingdom work. Father, I pray that you would help us, especially in those situations where we don't get along naturally with those around us. Help us, Father, especially in those situations to, respect your, to reflect your goodness and your love to those around us. In your name we pray, amen.